My name is Caleb Hunt. I'm the pastor at Grifton United Methodist Church, and welcome to the End of Words podcast, the home of our weekly sermons. If you are in the eastern North Carolina area and would like to come visit us, we have weekly worship services at 11 a.m. in our sanctuary on McRae Street, and we would love to have a chance to meet you in person. In the meantime, though, we pray that this message might help you in your own life, in your own context, to refocus on the story of Jesus. As a pastor, when I am planning a sermon series, sometimes it's nice to go with the book of the Bible that I already know a lot about, or that I've studied extensively in seminary or something, because, well, first of all, a lot of the work is already done, but also because it's exciting for me to be able to share with you all what I have learned. But other times, it's fun to pick a part of the Bible that is totally new to me, and that I just haven't really gotten around to studying in depth yet. This tends to be a bit more work, but then we get to sort of learn alongside one another. We get to discover the depths and truths of the Bible uh, at the same time. This sermon series is definitely the second one. With the five weeks that we have left before Advent, we are going to go through the book of James together, and I don't know anything about James. I grew up in a very Reformed context, descending from the Lutheran tradition. They are the faith alone, grace alone people. Their favorite Bible verses tend to be things like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which says, For it is by grace you have been saved, by faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. And they don't don't really know what to do with James, who insists that faith without works is dead, and then goes even further to claim, and this is a direct quote, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. We're going to get to that seeming contradiction eventually, I promise you. But yeah, the tradition that I grew up in uh, skipped by James pretty quickly on their way to 1 Peter, and maybe some of y'all have had similar experiences with this book. And so we are going to be learning together during this sermon series, what exactly does this little book of James have in store for us? Well, first question that we need to ask of ourselves is the question that you should always ask yourself before you begin reading a new book of the Bible seriously for the first time. You need to ask, what genre is this book? Because the Bible contains tons of different kinds of writings. It has poetry, history, prophecy, it's got biography. And if we try to read some of the poetry as if it was biography, or vice versa, we are only going to end up very confused, like someone that picked up a car repair manual and tried to read it like it was an Agatha Christie mystery novel. That is not going to be a fun time, and the car is never going to get fixed. So what genre is the book of James? Well, on the one hand, this seems like a pretty easy question. It's a letter, right? We have seen these before, starting with Paul's letter to the church in Rome. A church leader like Paul or Peter or somebody writes a letter to a certain early Christian community in order to address some issues that are going on there. So this is a letter from James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. But James' letter is, it's different. It, It doesn't follow a lot of the normal patterns that letters in the Bible tend to follow. For one thing, it is not directed to a particular church or person. It's not addressed to the church in Corinth or to Paul's disciple Titus. Instead, it's addressed to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That is interesting. We're going to get back to that. This letter also doesn't seem to be addressing any specific issues. Like in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he is clearly addressing problems from within that historic church. Members of that church, for instance, were keeping poor people out of their weekly feasts. And so Paul writes a letter, writes a letter explaining why they, why they shouldn't do that. James, on the other hand, doesn't seem to be addressing any specific concrete issues like that, but rather he seems to be offering broader, more universally applicable pieces of wisdom. So the book of James is a letter, yes, but it's a unique kind of letter. What it seems like we've got here 
is the accumulated wisdom of a beloved church leader, Jesus' half-brother James, that have been gathered into a resource meant for all new Christians in the early centuries of the church. The book of James is kind of like a greatest hits list, like the Beatles' greatest hits album, you know, that music list, and you read through those tracks and you're like, oh yeah, Come Together is on here, I Am the Walrus is on here, this is awesome. In the same way, an early Christian reading the book of James might be like, Oh yeah, James was always talking about how faith without works is dead. This is great stuff. Is his bit about taming the tongue in here? Oh yep, there it is. This is awesome. And so it's, it's quite the gift that we have been given here with this strange little letter. We have got the most insightful and important pieces of wisdom from a pillar of the early church, Jesus' own half-brother James, the teachings of somebody who literally grew up alongside the Savior of the world. This is a very important little book. The book of James also has a very interesting structure to it. For a long time, scholars thought that the book didn't really have any structure at all. They thought that James' snippets of wisdom were just kind of thrown together pretty much randomly. And if you were to try to read the book through from beginning to end, it does seem like James is jumping around a lot with some pretty abrupt transitions. But over the years, careful readers of the Bible began to see that there is some design to how this letter is laid out. Basically, James seems to use chapter 1 as a really punchy, intense introduction, where he touches very briefly on pretty much every topic that he wants to cover. All of the greatest hits that the body of the book is going to contain. Suffering, the power of the tongue, the relationship between the rich and the poor. And then, sometime later in the book, he returns to each topic introduced in chapter 1 in order to flesh out the idea more fully, maybe even tie a bow on it, so to speak. I created a little Google Doc with a chart on it to help you see how this works. On the left side, you can see all the different things that James touches on, rapid fire in the introductory chapter. And on the right is where, in the body of the book, James returns to that topic to expand or conclude it. This Google Doc, if I figure out the technology, should be linked in the uh, description of this episode. And so each week in this sermon series, our first scripture reading will consist of a portion of James chapter 1 that introduces the topic, and then our second reading will be the other portion of the book that discusses the same theme. Hopefully this handout or this Google Doc will help you keep track of where we are at. All right, let's jump in to week number one, and this week we are starting with the topic of trials and tribulations that we go through as Christians, and our first scripture reading comes from James chapter 1. We're reading James 1, 1 through 4. Hear these words from James chapter 1. I'm reading from the NRSV version. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now let that endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Our second scripture reading is going to be from James chapter 5, and we're reading James chapter 5, verses 7 through 8. Be patient, therefore, my beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. And so you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So with this first topic, James is not easing us into anything. He starts out with some of the most challenging and engaging stuff that he has to offer. Let's jump into it just by considering... Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, 
Greetings. As I mentioned earlier, this is an interesting opening, and it's different from the way that the other letters in the New Testament begin, because rather than addressing the church in Galatia or a person like Philemon, James is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What does that mean? Well, who are the 12 tribes? It's probably the 12 tribes of Israel, right, from the Old Testament, the sons of Jacob, each of whom grew up and founded a people group, a tribe, that together constitutes the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And so what's the dispersion? That word is referring to the exile, the time in Israel's history when God, as a just result of the people's sin, allowed them to fall to Assyria and Babylon and be dragged away into foreign lands. And so James, it seems, is addressing his letter to the 12 tribes of Israel living in exile away from the promised land. But that, that's weird. It, it doesn't really make sense because at the point in history when James is writing, presumably several decades after Jesus lived, the 12 tribes, they, they weren't a thing anymore. The Jewish people didn't organize themselves in that way during Jesus' time, living under Roman rule, and they hadn't since the kingdom had fallen. By this point, the 12 tribes, that was something that your great-great-great-grandparents had been a part of, but that you had only heard about sitting around the campfire. So who is James talking to? And why does he refer to them as the 12 tribes of the dispersion? Well, he is talking to the early church, the first communities of Christians, and with this brilliant little opening, he's already showing his audience how they fit into the grand story of the Bible. Because we believe, as Christians, first, that the church is the heir to Israel, the way through which God is still working and moving within the world. And secondly, we believe that we are in the midst of an exile of sorts, as those who have been claimed and redeemed by Jesus Christ, but who continue to live within a fallen world that has not yet reached its final redemption. So ultimately, James is talking to us. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. And he has addressed us in such a way that acknowledges the difficulties that we experience in this life. We know what it feels like to live in exile, in the metaphorical sense at least. We are exiles, according to the world of the Bible, from the Garden of Eden. We know what it feels like to live within a fallen world that has not been redeemed. As true citizens of heaven, we can see and feel the contrast between the kind of world that God created and will one day reestablish on the one hand, a world where God and humanity are at peace and there is no more mourning and crying and pain, And then on the other hand, we see the world as it is, the world filled with sin and suffering. Christians know that this world of strife and loss is not the way that it's supposed to be, and that is our experience of exile. In some ways, it's a depressing identity, honestly, that James has given us here in verse 1, addressing us as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. It's an identity that reminds us that we are lost, that the happy ending is still far out in the distance, and that there are still many trials ahead of us. Which makes his next word even stranger. The last bit of verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, joy to you, James says. Most Bible translations have greetings, like the NRSV, which is fine. But this particular greeting is from the Greek root kara, which means joy or delight. So this is the super sunny, enthusiastic greeting, the kind that you might be kind of annoyed with if you hadn't had your coffee yet. This is the hello text message with three smiley faces after it. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, joy to you. And it's this strange tension that characterizes James' discussion on the trials of this life. There is both a willingness to acknowledge the difficulty and pain of the situation. James knows that we are exiles living in a foreign land, and he knows the suffering that that situation entails. And yet he still thinks that it is appropriate to greet us not with a, with a my deepest condolences, but with a take joy, joy to you. Where does this guy get off? What's this guy's deal? When we keep reading, James doubles down even further in verse 2. He gets even more intense. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, 
consider it nothing but joy. Same Greek root as the word greetings, by the way, kara. What? What? This is one of the craziest verses in the Bible. It's honestly one that I struggle with myself. Trials of any kind, I should, I should consider them nothing but joy. That just doesn't seem realistic. Here I am living in exile with the struggles not only of my own life, but then also the pain of the world constantly splattered across the 24-hour news cycle, and I'm supposed to count all trials, all of them, as all joy? To be very honest with you, sometimes I cannot wrap my head around this verse, and sometimes when the difficulties and pain of this life seem too extreme and joy seems too far off, sometimes I need to retreat back to a psalm of lament, how long, O Lord, and just cry out to God for a while, or maybe I'll even dip back into Ecclesiastes and yell out with the preacher, vanity of vanities. But we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. So we have to hear James out. We got to let him defend this very ambitious thesis. All trials are occasions for joy. All right, James, how are you going to back that up? Well, James' argument basically has three stages, three points that are contained in verses three through four. We're going to take them one after another. The first point is that the testings, the trials of our faith, produce endurance. The second point is that we must let endurance take its full effect. And then James' third and final point is that if we do these things, we might become mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's start with that first one. Point number one, James writes, consider trials joy, my friends, because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. This is one of the distinct claims of the Christian faith, the claim that all difficulties and trials are not purposeless and meaningless. They are not just the random craziness of an uncaring material universe, just matter bumping into itself in unfortunate ways, but we believe rather that they have at least the potential to form us and to shape us. Jesus himself is a great example of this. Anything that we experience, Jesus himself experienced. And before Jesus began his ministry for real, the Gospels say that the Spirit drove him in the wilderness to be tested, to undergo a trial by Satan, by the adversary, as if this was a necessary step of preparation before he could do what was going to be required of him in the months and the years ahead. In a similar manner here, James tells us that the testing of our faith produces, it forms within us, endurance. And we need to pause for a minute on that word endurance because it's interesting. In the, Greek, in the Greek, the word that is used here is not necessarily a positive attribute. It could mean something like obstinate or hard-headedness, immovable, like a toddler who won't eat his peas even if he begins to starve. That's a kind of endurance, but any parent will tell you it is not a virtue, not something you want your kid to develop. And so I want you to think with me for a second. If you have ever developed an an unhealthy form of endurance or determination. I'm picturing maybe as an extreme example, the revenge impulse here. Someone has wronged you deeply, caused you real pain, a real trial in your life, and you might develop a kind of determination, obstinacy, or endurance centered not on anything resembling the fruits of the spirit, but on hatred or anger, the drive to get even or to prove them wrong. And that anger keeps you moving. It's a driving force. It's a kind of endurance, but it sure doesn't look very Christ-like. Or maybe you've developed endurance by closing a part of yourself off, by turning inward on yourself and building up walls and allowing calluses to form all over you. You found that dealing with your pain and sadness can be easier if you just keep it to yourself and you don't share it with anyone, maybe not even with God. That is also a sort of endurance, but it's a lonely kind and it doesn't look anything like joy. And so I think this is why James has to move on to his second point. Trials of faith produce endurance, but then James tells us to let endurance have its full effect. 
The key to this second building block in James' argument is that it is in the imperative tense, meaning it is a command. James is telling us that we need to do something. When trials produce endurance, James commands us to let endurance have its full effect. He's implying here that when trials come, they will inevitably produce endurance. But that is at least, it is at least partly up to us what kind of endurance it is whether or not it turns into the angry determination of revenge, having a chip on your shoulder, we might say, or the sad endurance of resignation and loneliness, even the silly obstinacy of the kid that won't eat his broccoli, or we might allow endurance to develop into its true purpose, to take its full effect, which leads us to the third and final piece of what James is trying to communicate to us, continuing in verse 4. If we allow endurance to take its full effect, James says that we may become mature and complete lacking in nothing. The terms here translated as mature and complete, lacking in nothing, they have the sense of wholeness, becoming a whole person, the type of person that God designed us to be without the gaps and the fissures that sin and brokenness have created within us and within our character. The theological word for this is sanctification. If we are open to the possibility that our trials can produce endurance, and then we allow that endurance to fulfill its purpose, God can use even the pain of life for his purposes, to mold us into the whole and complete people that is that is our true nature, apart from the corrosive effects of sin. Part of Buddhist philosophy, this is a hard transition, I realize that, stick with me. Part of Buddhist philosophy is this, is this distinction between pain and suffering. Buddhists believe that those are two different things. Pain is the physical feeling in our bodies that tells us something is wrong. Let's say I drop a piece of furniture that I'm moving on my foot and I break my toe. I feel pain because my body is telling me, yep, that's broken. You need to go get a splint or something and stay off it for a few weeks. The physical sensation, the throbbing in my foot, that's pain. Suffering, though, is all of the emotional and spiritual turmoil that I might start to feel about that pain. I cannot believe I did that. This is so stupid, stupid, stupid. This is the worst. Now I have to get a boot. I won't be able to walk the dog. Why did this happen to me? What did I do to deserve this? It's not fair. Life's not fair. Everything sucks. That is suffering. And you can see how it's another thing. It's different. It's additional to just the physical sensation of a broken toe. And a part of becoming a better Buddhist is training oneself to not let pain progress into suffering. To feel the pain but to try not to hate it, try not to obsess about it, and therefore uh, not to suffer it more than need be. And this is like a muscle that you strengthen with regular practice and exercise and meditation in the Buddhist tradition. And if you can master it, then a broken toe is just a broken toe and not a reason to start hating the whole world. And since I believe as a Christian that all truth is God's truth, I think that this little insight from Buddhism is actually on display here in James and might help us understand what he's talking about. I think that James is talking about a particular attitude, a stance towards trials and testing that I need to try and cultivate within myself. It's an instinct, it's a reaction to suffering that I am called to hone and develop. Rather than let trials turn me inward on myself, turn into resignation or obstinacy or a drive for revenge, rather than letting my pain multiply endlessly into suffering. I should rather be constantly on the lookout for ways to allow my trials to lead to endurance and then allow endurance to have its full effect to reach its final end, to make me more like Jesus, more aware maybe of my dependence of God, on God, maybe more empathetic and kind to the people around me, more thankful for the blessings that I do have. And this it has to be a conscious effort. 
That means that when a trial comes, I have to remember this lesson from James, and I have to be actively looking. Not without difficulty, maybe, but I have to be looking for ways to do this. How might God be at work in this trial? What part of myself might God be uh, able to make more complete? How am I being pushed towards wholeness? Now, this is a very important point. It, sometimes you are not going to be able to find answers. You will not be able to do this. And when that happens, that is okay. You go find a good psalm of lament, or you go back to one of Ecclesiastes' rants, and then you just have a good cry or a good screaming session right in front of God. He's fine with it. He can handle it. He welcomes it even. But when you can, try to start working out this muscle again, practicing this attitude towards trials allowing them to do the sanctifying work of God, moving us closer to wholeness, lacking in nothing. This is a very, this is a difficult instruction. I think that James was fully aware that he is leading off with some of his more difficult stuff, which is why I think that when James circles back to this topic of trials and tribulations near the end of his letter, he decides to remind us that we will not be in exile forever. He reminds us that all of our trials are only temporary as we await the coming of the Lord. It's with a much gentler tone, almost a pastoral tone, that James writes in chapter 5, verse 7, Be patient, therefore, my beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And so I think ultimately maybe that's what will give us the strength to see all trials as joyful opportunities to grow in Christ-likeness because we know how the story ends. We know that it ends with no more mourning or crying or pain, and we know that this exile ends with reunion. And so we do our best, and we are patient until the coming of the Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.